Hey folks, welcome to Your Basket is Empty, a space where I sit down with the world's most interesting people in direct-to-consumer. I'm your host, Tim. So this is Series 4 of 2021, and I have the pleasure of meeting and chatting with a select group of impact brands to unpack their story, growth, and how they're adapting to the evolving digital and consumer landscape. On this episode, I chat with my good friend Hannah Samano, founder and CEO of Unfabled, the world's first wellness platform for cycle care. Before founding Unfabled, Hannah spent time at Unilever in their global e-commerce innovation team, where she launched their first in-house direct-to-consumer brand. At Kasha, where she launched Africa's largest femtech company, an e-commerce platform for women's health. And finally, time in the leadership team at We Make Websites, the Shopify Plus agency for international brands. Before we get into it, this podcast is brought to you by Yotpo, the leading e-commerce marketing platform that's designed to increase customer engagement, promote community advocacy, and improve retention. Yotpo's single platform integrates advanced solutions for loyalty and referrals, SMS marketing, reviews, and more so brands can strengthen relationships and customers and drive meaningful metrics like AOV, LTV, CVR, and more. That's why 35,000 plus direct consumer brands use Yotpo. Start building profitable relationships with your customers today by signing up for free at yotpo.com slash your basket is empty. Enjoy the episode. Hannah, welcome to the podcast. How are you and where are you? Hello, Tim. Um, I'm very well, thank you. I am in my flat in Bethnal Green currently in East London. Um, and yeah, looking forward to another podcast with you, e-commerce podcast extraordinaire. You know what? So you are a, one of one. So I've I've not had anyone on the podcast twice, and this is your third appearance. Damn, I feel very privileged amazing? right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's kind of apt because there, there's something in. Obviously, we've known each other for a while, but like that, there is this kind of like interesting journey touch point if you were to listen to those three podcasts and I think now is one of the most exciting to be talking to you so without further ado I'd love to understand let's talk about Unfabled how did it start and where are you at of course so Unfabled is the world's first marketplace for menstrual well-being and we curate sustainable and ethical brands for menstrual care menstrual symptoms and for self-care throughout the month And I started working on it in January in lockdown and I had just finished working at We Make Websites with you um, and had seen these problems in the consumer space to do with menstrual care. And the problem that I had mainly seen was that menstrual care is excluded from the wellness industry. And even though 50% of the population will have a period during their lifetime and that we will probably have a period for 40 years of our lives, and that we'll be on our period for 10 years of our lives, that experience is just not being met by the wellness space. So I kind of quit my job knowing that I wanted the full full amount of time to solve this challenge. And uh, as you know, we kind of knew each other from the Shopify agency world. So I quickly cobbled together a Shopify site. And by the end of February, I was ready to start testing this idea. And I'd brought maybe... 12 brands onto the site. I was reaching out to brands. Hey, can I buy your stock at wholesale price? I was storing it in my flat. And then I launched Unfabled at the end of February, really not knowing what to expect and whether this was even a good idea. And sold out of everything in the first week. So stepped into March with this website with kind of no stock left. And since then, it's just been this frantic whirlwind of an experience and um, sort of March through to May was rapid testing, gathering a lot of interesting data and customer feedback about 
what they were wanting to buy, what were they coming back to buy again, already getting some really interesting stuff on repeat rates. Um, probably makes sense that there's something with a monthly cycle is probably mm. well set up to have interesting repeat rates from an e-commerce perspective. And then uh, sort of through the summer was really fundraising and I closed the funding round in September. So I'm speaking to you now as I have just moved all the product into an actual office and I've just hired um, two brilliant people full time. And it feels like it's moving from being an idea that I was testing out in my living room to now a small fledgling startup. So it's really exciting. That's quite the journey in such a small space of time. <laughs> right. um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm curious to know, um, you, you touched on some really interesting stats there at the start of the kind of journey discussion, but like, why do you think it's important to rewrite the period care story now? Yeah. So my main thesis is that when a shopping experience is substandard. And so for example, in period care, typically we would find period products in the supermarket in the aisle next to pet food or next to cleaning products. And in fact, that was one of the kind of light bulb moments I had mm. where I went to Tesco's to buy my, my tampons and they were next to dog food in the supermarket aisle. And I just thought then and there, actually, there's, it's not surprising that I feel ashamed by my period when the consumer experience is set up like this. So I think that by rewriting the consumer experience and by creating one that is beautiful, modern, enjoyable, God forbid, that we can start to reframe how people are thinking and feeling around their own menstrual cycles and we can start to debunk stigma uh, in doing so. So, so that's really what I'm holding on to is that by turning the consumer experience on its head, we can start to change the stat that nearly two thirds of people with periods still feel embarrassed by them. The consumer experience is very interesting to me and that's a fascinating kind of insight into where this kind of space is at. As part of this podcast series, I'm sort of exploring these ideas of impact brands and uh, the growth and journey and, you know, what its effect on um, consumerism is. And I saw an interesting business of fashion article that suggested the new four P's of marketing are a pyramid of purpose, positioning partnerships and personalization. And I'd love to understand how do you think, well, what do you think of that and how do you potentially fit into that mix? Yeah, I, I definitely think that those are four super important tenets now to creating anything. Um, the two that speak most closely to Unfabled right now are definitely purpose and personalization. So Unfabled is built on purpose, on wanting to do um, business that is good to the world and good to people's bodies. And so sustainability, uh, it runs to the core of everything we're doing. We only curate sustainable brands for menstrual care. And a lot of the brands we work with, in fact, are purpose brands themselves. So mm -hmm. many give five, 10% of their profits to charitable causes. Um, many are B Corps. In fact, all of our brands are female founded apart from Tony Chocolony, uh, but that was definitely <laughs> We're worth get on having. get Tony Chocolony in a bit, but yeah, I'm glad you <laughs> Still a brand worth having. Um, but yeah, accidentally, all of our brands are female founded. And so we've, we're finding now that Unfabled is very much this kind of activist brand and we are supporting women-owned businesses. We're supporting sustainability, um, you know, women's bodies and gender 
uh, the kind of moving the needle on the conversation around gender as we use inclusive language when talking about periods. Um, mm-hmm. One thing that's yeah important to know is that non-binary people and trans men may have periods. So mm-hmm. we find that our purpose to be gender inclusive is, is really key too. Um, and I think now, without having a strong purpose as a brand, I think consumers are, are wary of that. Mm-hmm. And we've been through this epoch of, you know, a mushrooming of lots of D2C brands and then a sort of, you know, a bit of a death. You watch some of these brands rise and fall and, you know, the, the likes of the aways of this world mm-hmm. and some of the mattress brands. And, and actually we start to see that without a long-term vision for purpose and what is this brand really here to do? what's going to keep the customer coming back again and again and again, because they're loyal, not to the brand, but to the purpose. I think that now without having one, you're just probably not set up to succeed long-term. And then the other thing that I I'd love to speak to is the personalization piece. And again, I think we're coming out of this really interesting time in the D2C world where customers have almost been given a bit of a one size fits all. Like a brand is a subscription service or a brand is a marketplace, or, you know, it, it fits into very neat categories and lines. And actually, I think what the modern person is looking for, and the research that I do with, with our customers and community is that there is no one size fits all. And that some people, no matter what, how technologically pro they are as millennials, or how tech averse they are, some people just don't like subscriptions mm. and some people really love them. So for me, personalization, it's not just about having someone's name embossed on the, the packaging of a product. It's, are you really personalizing your offering yep. to suit what that person wants to suit their lifestyle? So for Unfabled, I'm really wanting to build this in a way that is catering to each individual's preferences around their menstrual cycle. And also, you know, people really experience periods in different ways and, that's what I want to try and solve for you. Know, there are so many categories now of menstrual care products. We've got tampons, pads, liners, and we've got more innovations and kind of period cups and reusable pads and reusable tampon applicators. And the list goes on. And there's so much choice in a space where typically people haven't been offered that choice. And so really right now we're thinking about how we can continue to evolve Unfabled to offer products in a personalized way to meet each user's needs when it comes to serving their menstrual symptoms and their wellness preferences throughout the month. So interesting. Um, I really, uh, the, the subscription piece resonates with me um, in what you've just said there and um, myself and another uh, e-com uh, stalwart, Luke Hodgson from e-commerce thinking and high cohesion shout out to those guys we were discussing this <laughs> very thing the other day and i think that 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 the subscription model is great i think from a conceptual business perspective but it's actually really difficult technically and i think that maybe part of that is why d2c brand see it as such a favorable consumer touch point or engagement sort of piece because it makes sense from a um you know income perspective but yeah i think flipping it on its head and asking whether the consumer does want a subscription do they really want to be involved in that kind of transaction or are there other ways of engaging with them yeah Um, exactly so i suppose following from that i don't know if you've experienced it thus far and maybe you have maybe haven't because you you, you're early on to the journey but i'd love to understand how if you have experienced it how do you balance the kind of impact purpose and profitability or 
you know, are you foreseeing that that's going to be a thing you're going to have to tackle at some point in the future? I think, you know, the honest answer is that right now, because we're so small and because we're a, we're a long way off turning a profit right now, we're not in a position to offer, you know, these, these kind of slightly grandiose, um, you know, commitments saying, oh, we'll donate five to 10% yeah. of our, of our profits because that, that margin isn't there yet for us. Um, but what I will say is that you know, for me, that the most important thing businesses can do and the most sustainable thing businesses can do is to build a profitable business model and to build a business that isn't going to hemorrhage money for years. And so that's my goal is to build a really sustainable business model. And once that is in place, then I think that paves the way to being able to truly give back. And as soon as we're in a position where it's looking like we're going to be able to give back, then absolutely. I'm, I mean, I'm so excited to think of the opportunities there and, you know, brands today, like who gives a crap, you know, they donate 50% of their profits to water sanitation projects and that, that kind of like truly impactful purpose-driven brands and significant um, donations to spaces that matter. That is definitely the space that I would be wanting to think about and figure out for Unfabled. What does that look like? Because we, we speak to so many causes. We speak to you know, mm. period poverty is unfortunately on the rise in the UK. Um, and then, you know, there is a lot of sustainability challenges with current menstrual care and pollution of water and um, and of land that can have ramifications on marine wildlife and all sorts of ecological structures. So, so there there is just a whole plethora of spaces that we could be thinking about wanting to partner with charities or organizations that are really doing fantastic work in those spaces. I think that, yeah, as I've mentioned, the, the first priority is to get the business into a state where we will be able to continue and have a long-term impact and partnership in these important spaces. Whereas if we create a business that crashes and burns quickly, then that's not going to be good to anyone long-term. So that that's sort of where I'm sitting right now, not committing uh, a specific contribution because the contribution isn't there yet. But as soon as it is, you know, I'm really fortunate that the investors on board and the people we work with all have a very conscientious approach to doing business and are all investing in Unfavored as well because they see the problems and they want to support someone and you know organizations solving for them. So I know that I'll be able to you know, put heads together with my investors and kind of board at that stage to discuss where do we want to really support organizations um, who are working in the spaces we care about. You touched on it um, before, but I want to talk about community building. And, and I'm, I'm wondering, is it part of the new GDC playbook or is it always been there? And then I'd love to understand like how, how are you guys approaching community? So I think that, I don't know if it has always been there because I think rolling back a hot minute, brands were able to acquire huge customer bases mm. on Facebook in the early mm. days. Mm. And we know now that acquisition costs have gone up dramatically and that actually it's much harder now as a brand to target people effectively, even on Facebook. Um, which is conversation for another day. That's probably for the best, <laughs> right? Um, but for business, it's it's proving challenging. So I think that as it's become 
harder to get those good acquisition costs, brands have been thinking about a more long-term play of creating an audience. And yeah, a community is the way to do that. And so um, I think that community building is now 100% part of the D2C playbook. And, and if you don't have that, then you don't have something that people necessarily will be coming back to. And, you know, acquiring a customer to kind of potentially buy once and then never come back is, it's, well, it's expensive for the brand, but also that's surely not why we're in business. You know, we want to create really loyal people who will come back. So, you know, whether that's an Instagram community or a really strong mailing list or now, you know, TikTok communities, the list goes on. I think what's important is that as brands, we try not to spread ourselves too thinly and that we focus on the spaces, the channels that it makes sense to build your community in. Um, you know, for example, for some brands that might be really focusing on Facebook, you know, sort of the, 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 the boomer generation um, live much more on Facebook than Gen Z, for example. So it's really thinking about where's your audience and then how can we build a community that speaks to them in that space and, and for Unfabled, you know, we're really at the start of that journey, but absolutely it's a priority for us. So um, you know, Instagram, in many ways, was the way in which Unfabled took off in that first week. You know, it, it sold out, everything sold out in a week and it was all through Instagram. So people would buy from Unfabled and then the unboxing experience is, you know, it's nothing life-changing but it's better than amazon we make I, was, <laughs> I was writing handwritten notes and putting in small yeah, tony's yeah, chocolate yeah. chocolates yeah. and there's nice tissue paper that's non-toxic and recyclable um so it, the unboxing experience was lovely and people were sharing it on their stories and tagging on fabled so it had this slight dominoes effect then more people were seeing it on their friends stories and oh great this is a really small business in you know in london female founders let me support so I already saw in that week one that Instagram for us had this enormous potential to get people around the mission and people who also were looking for an alternative for their period care. And so from then we kind of continued on the Instagram. And, and actually when I say we, that's a thing I think a lot of early stage startup founders do. And it's just one person. It was just me, but I say we to try and make it look better. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. But yeah. I mean, luckily now when I say we, there are actually more people than me. <laughs> um, but back in those days, you know, it was me on Instagram and I was starting to explore things like reels and putting myself out there, which, yeah. you know, felt a bit bumpy at the start. But actually, once I pushed through that wall of self-doubt and insecurity, I realized actually people do want to hear from me. And that when I'm putting content out, videos, stories, Instagram lives, it's getting people, not just followers, that's not the thing I really care about. It's engaged followers. Mm -hmm. So then people would be DMing me like, oh my gosh, Hannah, you just said something that really resonated with me. And actually I've had these issues with my period, but I've never really spoken to anyone about it. So what became really apparent to me was that us being, you know, really transparent and me just speaking to the community authentically was then building trust. And then people were telling me as well, what brands they were looking for, what were their pain points with their mm -hmm. menstrual cycle. Mm -hmm. And I was able to, to start kind of building that. So, you know, now the first full-time hire I've made, which I, um, she's just joined the team this week. The first full-time hire is a social media and community manager. Mm -hmm. And, you know, some people think oh well why didn't you hire kind of you know someone maybe more on the growth side or a COO or what all these things but 
for me, the community and growing that through meaningful content and meaningful connection is how as a marketplace, you know, we don't have IP, we don't manufacture, that is going to be our moat. That's how we build that stickiness. So the audience and the community building uh, is the number one priority for Unfabled right now. I'm keen to explore that just a little bit further. And you touched on some of the points there, but um, you mentioned getting some customer data and, and everything that you've just discussed around your community. But from your perspective, do you think that being kind of impact and purpose driven is helping with your customer loyalty and brand advocacy? Yes, a hundred percent. I think there's no doubt. And one of the things that was really exciting in the first three months of trading, let's say that, that set me up well to fundraise was that as I was speaking to investors, I was already seeing really strong repeat rates, Mm. Um, you know, from our first cohort, over 50% had already come back and it was kind of nearing that for the second cohort. And I think that, you know, firstly, the ex- I would hope the experience of Unfabled was a positive one and that people enjoyed the Unfabled experience and the products that we sell. I'm very, very selective about the brands that we would curate and put onto the platform. What we are really seeking to do is to do the legwork for our community and find them the best sustainable and ethical brands so they don't have to spend 10 hours on Google. So all the brands we list are honestly incredible. Like I would be so proud to share them with anyone. So that I hope that the product offering is strong, but I definitely think the, the brand side and, and them knowing that it's a small business and they feel connected to that. So, you know, I'm personally thanking them, writing them the cards, they see me show up on Instagram. They see pictures of their own orders. And I think that feeling of, oh, actually, business is just people. Mm. And I'm seeing, I'm investing my money here. I'm spending, let's say, £30 on an order. And I feel really good about that because it's going into a business that I'm watching grow. Um, so I think there's a, a satisfaction almost. And then I think, you know, again, our community feel really positive about all of the brands that we're listing because they are sustainable, they are ethical. And on Unfabled, we have a section on every product um, page that just says why we love. And it's a, you know, a, a customized mini essay about why we've chosen that brand and why they're an incredible brand. So I think our community and our customers, they really know what is good about what, what they're buying. And, you know, there's probably some kind of uh, I'm sure someone who works in neurology would be able to come at me with something positive that's happening in their brain as they <laughs> know they're clicking on something that's doing good in the world. Um, but yeah, I think it feeds into wanting to come back and keep supporting and keep discovering sustainable and ethical brands. So yeah, I'm really grateful that we have strong repeat rates so far. And I think without a doubt, having purpose and impact woven into our core is enabling that you've touched on it a few times there and you you mentioned it again but so how did it start with the brands that you you work with like how how, did you just go out to a bunch that you were kind of already affiliated with by being a consumer of them or just knowing them being in the kind of like space that you're in um and how have you kind of got loads knocking on your door right now like how does it work (laughs) yeah so gosh the first few weeks so when i was in my flat in january 
peak winter, peak lockdown, just <laughs> me thinking about this idea and starting to send emails out to brands. Yeah. Um, I had nothing to show them at that stage. I didn't have a name. I had no branding, absolutely no website. Uh, you know, it's just my personal email address. Hey, um, I'm thinking of building a marketplace for menstrual well-being where I curate sustainable brands. Yeah. Would love to have you on board. What do you think? And I started really with menstrual care because that, that was the backbone for what I was seeing is that there are a number of really exciting, independent, sustainable menstrual care brands, but they're all D2C and they all kind of live in their own website. Yeah. And I wanted to bring them into one place because someone might prefer CBD tampons. Someone might prefer a cup. Someone might actually just prefer normal pads and tampons that are sustainable, but I wanted to give people that bird's eye view so I started reaching out to the menstrual care brands and had an overwhelming response I had you know I, I didn't have any no's uh, all the brands said yeah love this concept you know here's my wholesale price list yep. whenever you're ready just you know let's get going and then I also started kind of reaching out to the wellness brands CBD brands yep. skincare lifestyle uh, saying this is the concept you know and I would love to position your brands alongside sustainable menstrual care and I probably had more doubt there wondering whether brands that aren't menstrual care would want to be seen in that space because there's a stigma that is still in society or periods you know maybe that doesn't go hand in hand with my luxury CBD brand mm. but again I was just completely taken aback I didn't have a single no all of the brands I reached out to were really excited really supportive and I think for those brands actually whether it's CBD or skincare or wellness like aromatherapy for them actually being positioned alongside menstrual care is exciting because that opens up a whole other audience for them or almost um, kind of a, a target a, a solution to their products let me say so you know CBD for example has a huge wealth of benefits for women's health it, it relieves um, it can relieve pain. It can relieve inflammation, which can be really helpful for menstrual cramps. Mm -hmm. It can help with sleep, pain, um, anxiety, and stress. So actually, as a CBD brand, being in a space that is speaking directly to the period experience, I think is a, is a cool concept. So yeah, it was just really overwhelmingly positive. Um, as I mentioned, I ended up having products stacked against most walls in my flat. <laughs> and now we're at a point where I haven't actually done brand outreach in the last probably four months because the, 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 the weight tipped in that now brands are reaching out to Unfabled. Oh, and that amazing. started once we'd launched and they, they almost, you know, they DM on Instagram, hey, you know, we'd love to be on Unfabled. And then they tend to drop us an email. So it's, it's really exciting. We've now got loads of amazing brands reaching out to us and uh, and then also I've, I've just been able to bring on an e-commerce assistant who's fantastic. And so she's now also thinking more strategically around brands and, and doing more outreach again. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. But yeah, so I, I think we've been really lucky with the reception we've had in the B2B space. I want to switch gears slightly. Um, and it's something I'm kind of posing to everyone in this podcast series because the series is 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 a is is a theme of impact brands and purpose-led brands, and it's very obvious to me that uh, greenwashing is a is a topic. And I appreciate in your space it, it kind of touches it. I suppose there might be another way of looking at it. It's like 
corporate social responsibility washing <laughs> as a general sort of way of thinking about it. But what's your take on it? Do you think it's better that people are being exposed to the idea of conscious consumerism and sustainability, or do you think it's dangerous that companies are potentially piggybacking these ideas for their own personal gain? I think that's such a good question. And what it really comes down to is the individual like me, you, the consumer being educated enough that we know what to look out for and when to see greenwashing. And I think that that is probably still quite difficult because sustainability in the mainstream is quite a fresh thing. But it is, um, it's absolutely something to be mindful of. And where I see it, and it distresses me, is, is in the menstrual care space where the brands that have been dominating for decades and decades that are toxic to women's bodies and toxic to the planet because they're bleached, that they contain microplastics, they contain wrappers and applicators that can take 500 to 1,000 years to decompose. Now, some of these brands are starting to create product lines that are more quote unquote sustainable. Mm. And, you know, whatever that is, sometimes just throwing around words um, like sustainable or eco-friendly organic as well as one of those words that you know sometimes it's just interchangeable with sustainable but that's that's not true at all so I I see that now and I I want people to be really cautious of that you know brands that have really perpetuated problems particularly in the menstrual care space now probably going into boardrooms and seeing the you know, market opportunities and and mm. also potentially a changing tide in consumer appetites and I think that's it when when sustainability is being driven by profit as opposed to doing business in the right way, I do think it comes through because it, it looks a bit faddy. And, and again, it's easy to go back and look into a brand's history and find out what they used to do. Um, so I just think that as much as consumers can for us to be a bit wary and have our eyes open and as well, you know, with independent brands, when they say sustainable, like, let's really find out what that means. You know, does that mean that it contains plastic, but it's recyclable? Or does that mean that products are fully biodegradable? Does that mean that actually they're using bioplastics, which is, it's still a plastic, it's it's probably, it's it's less toxic than typical plastic. But there, there are a lot of layers to this. And I think the best thing is for all of us to just take a bit of time in in educating ourselves um, and knowing what red flags might be. Um, but again, I, I think that's where it just all comes down to trust. And it's the brand's responsibility to try and build trust with your audience. And I think when trust is broken, it's quite difficult to gain it back. So, you know, brands have to be so careful now about um, really kind of walking the walk because I think that in today's day and age, they will be called out at some stage. And we see that you know, brands have PR disaster. And, <laughs> um, and then, you know, it can be really, really difficult for them to claw it back. Yeah, I find it so fascinating that the, the amount of money and, and um, talent that sometimes in these brands, you know, corporate headquarters or whatever, and still they, they don't manage to avert some of those PR disasters. Yeah, it's, it's quite amazing. Agreed. Um, You've touched on your fundraising journey. I'd love to understand how it's been going. 
maybe some advice for anyone else embarking on their fundraising journey. But I, I'd love to touch on, you mentioned that um, you've managed to get on board fundraisers that really believe in what you, you're doing um, or investors rather, sorry. It's, how has that gone about? Like, w- w- was it again similar to the the brands that you you, you kind of uh, were, were, were curating um, when you went out? There was a, a a good response, or was it slightly more difficult? Like, how did that work? So the the people who have ended up investing and the people that I would want as investors in Unfabled, they are sold the minute I show them the idea and I show them my pitch deck, and it, they they see immediately what we're solving for and they're on board then there are people who immediately have a lot of questions and a lot of doubt and they I have to explain you know that periods aren't a niche I have to explain the market opportunity in femtech and yes it's absolutely my role to try and share the good message and the the good word and bring people on this journey with me but at the same time for the cynics and for people who still want to think that that you know women's health is a niche they're probably not going to be the right investor in unfabled actually mm. so i found that it was an interesting journey for me in that in the start i started fundraising and speaking to people getting connected to some people through my network but really the majority of people i connected with and who've ended up investing came from me doing a lot of cold outreach on linkedin it came from me being in Clubhouse a lot. God, do you remember Q1, Q2 back in when Clubhouse was a real thing? Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it worked for me because I was just in there in rooms speaking about Unfabled. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it was it was just a very modern fundraising journey where I, you know, attracted people through Clubhouse, through LinkedIn, did, you know, the grunt work myself, but found, you know, qu- quite quickly found people who were in and I think the purpose-driven element helps. I think that being the first to market helps. Um, so it, it was it was it was a really warming experience from that side. But then I also grew in confidence throughout the journey. So at the start of the fundraising, I attracted a few people who, you know, they talked a big talk and they were wanting to invest quite large ticket sizes. And then as things evolved, they were. They, they, they were really trying to undercut me on valuation mm. and that didn't feel good. Mm. And they were, it just, I'm going to say it felt very Dragon's Den. It mm. felt very like, we're here actually to try and shark you. Mm. And for a few weeks, I thought, okay, damn, maybe that's what investment's going to be like. Okay. <laughs> maybe I should go on the TV show. It's easier. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, I guess, yeah, this is, this is business. And then... And then I continued meeting people and it was a bit of a snowball effect, actually, because then I was attracting investors who were 100% like aligned and then they were bringing people on. Mm. And, and so that's something I really recommend is often if you find someone who, see, who wants to invest in you, they are brilliant because they can bring in whether it's angels or yeah. people yeah, that yeah. they know from their network. And so as that was happening and I was attracting more people who were aligned, I finally kind of got the chutzpah to say to these other earlier state the investors who I'd attracted at the start you know actually this isn't the right fit I I don't think this is going to work out and so I ended up turning some investors away and and that felt really scary to do at the time and now looking back it was just a hundred percent the right thing and and you know the round ended up being oversubscribed I I ended up raising quite a lot more than I was planning on doing Mm -hmm. and 
I feel super grateful for that. And I think it was just probably not swaying on fit. And, you know, someone said to me, and it really stuck with me, you know, actually your investors choosing the right ones is more important than choosing who you marry because with marriage there's divorce, but with investors, there's, there's no such thing. So, you know, these people are going to be with you for the ride. <laughs> so I think that, that was just really something I had, I had to get there by myself, really realize, know my worth, realize that there were people who wanted to invest on the valuation that felt right to me. And there were enough people and then there were too many people. And so, you know, don't, settle for people who are trying to kind of yeah undermine your value essentially that's really sage advice that's really interesting about the um the marriage concept yeah i'd say that the um investor divorce proceedings are much more difficult feels like much greater legal costs (laughs) yes (laughs) um on top of all of this I don't even know. I don't know if you're sleeping or, it just, you know, it seems like to me you're working 24 hours a day, but you've been accepted into a femtech, uh, into Femtech Labs Accelerator Program. Tell me a little bit more about it. Yes, this has been very exciting. So Femtech Lab is the world's first startup accelerator that is focused on Femtech. So Femtech is the word for um, this industry, which is technology companies in women's health and wellness. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's a huge 60 billion dollar industry um kind of projected by 2027 some estimates now say that by 2027 it's going to be a one trillion dollar industry um so femtech lab saw this opportunity and i am really yeah was grateful that we were accepted onto the second ever cohort so they select 10 startups from around the world and unfavored was one of them and it started in september and it's been brilliant it, it feels a bit like going back to school in some ways. I've got classes and <laughs> advisors, but I, I feel like they're my teachers. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. it's been really positive. And, you know, after from January until August, it was like I was almost swimming at the sea, just swimming at sea, looking around. There was kind of no one, there were no boys, no ships, just a lot of sky and a lot of water and sometimes a lot of waves. And since I've joined the Startup Accelerator, I feel like, you know, someone's given me a a life jacket mm. and now I could kind of see the island in the distance <laughs> and I'm like swimming towards it there's an objective and so yeah. it's brought structure into an otherwise like fairly uh, undefined early stage startup experience yeah. and just having that structure and having a community of other startup founders and advisors is incredibly valuable because mm-hmm. Yeah, sometimes as a founder, you feel like, oh my gosh, I'm so alone, actually. I, you know, this is really nuts. And then you speak to people and you realize, no, actually a lot of people are having the same challenges. Like how much to spend on laptops for your early employees? How much to spend on kitting out your office? You know, like what startup insurance to get? It's just a lot of kind of niggling small things. But as a founder, they can they can build up and it can feel like, you know, a mountain and when you just have even whatsapp groups or slack groups or the founders you realize that it's these things are the easy things so yeah it's been great to have that support and it finishes on the first of december it culminates in a demo day and nice. um you know i think it will be a great opportunity for unfable to be put in front of more investors and hopefully foster some relationships and connections that will mean when we're looking to fundraise again for our next round we know who to talk to. 
I love the out to sea in a slight storm and finding and getting a life jacket, maybe requiring <laughs> a pair of binoculars to see yes, the shore. Exactly. I, I love that analogy. Um, we've done a lot of looking back in current. I'd love to sort of round out by looking forward. What does Unfabled look like in 2023? Oh, wow. So it's so, I'm like, or is that too long a time? I don't know. <laughs> maybe 2020, end of 2022. Well, I'm smiling because it's all so exciting. I mean, I'm I'm hoping that by the end of next year, we will have been able to invest quite heavily in our e-commerce uh, technology. Right now, Unfabled is still living on the Shopify site that I built in a week, and it's doing the job. But there's a lot of, a lot of room for improvement. So I'm I'm hoping that early next year I will be able to fundraise again. Um, you know. Right now, the focus is very much on growth and traction, customer acquisition. And hopefully once we've got some good metrics there, that will unlock being able to fundraise again and, you know, more so that I can really bring on some brilliant people um, kind of to look after, yeah, the econ tech side of things. So I know we touched on personalization at the start, and that's an area I really, really want to focus on is evolving unfabled so that we can personalize your cycle care experience to you and your preferences needs and lifestyle so i i, I view there being quite a a heavy investment into design and dev early next year um so by the end of 2022 unfabled is a go-to place to find cycle care products and advice tailored to you um and you know i, I hope as well that next year we will be starting to think about what would Unfabled's second market be mm. um, and start thinking about how we would run a pilot there, what that would look like. Could we even run a pilot next year? Um, you know, I think there are different schools of thought. Some people who believe that you should really wait until a market is saturated before you would think about expanding. And then others who think about actually your international expansion plan should be woven into the start of the business. So mm -hmm. I think that's that's just an area that I'm really excited to work through with my team and with my investors and figure that out. But in terms of where I want this to go, you know, I have every ambition that Unfable will become a global solution and really reframe how we think about our periods within our wellness for, you know, for the masses. And so um we'll do that through continuing to listen to the community build the community uh, evolve the product offering personalize what we're doing to to you and your your needs and and start thinking about where we can take this next um after the uk well i promise to have you on the show in january 2023 to see where we're at how about that <laughs> excellent all right sound like a plan the, the ticking clock is on <laughs> exactly <laughs> um final question maybe the most important what's your favorite tony's chocolony flavor oh caramel sea salt oh my god it's so that is just, it's too good there was a very dangerous time where in it was still locked down from february until april may and it was winter and I just had boxes and boxes of Tony's oh, no. Chocolonely in the oh, flat. No. And so that that was a dangerous time. I, I will say I'm through that now. It's probably for the best of the products now in the office that I leave that space in the evenings. 
but yeah, the 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 orange wrapper, Tony Shoffoli, sea salt and caramel is just dangerously good. What is your favorite flavor, Tim? I'm gonna have to agree. You know what? I only realized um upon going to like a Whole Foods or something that there was more than like one or two flavors because my local co-op has only got access to one or two. So yeah, it, it has opened my eyes. And I think the, the salted caramel one I'd have to agree with you is absolutely delicious. Okay, well, all I can say is that we're about to bring on the two Christmas flavors of Tony Chocolonely to Unfabled. So keep your eyes peeled. I know you might not think you're the target Unfabled customer, but I'm going to prove you wrong. So um, I will let you know once we've got the new flavors up and I would love to send you some. Um, so yeah, stay tuned. You heard it here first. I think that's a great way to end the podcast. Hannah, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Tim. There you go. A massive thank you to Hannah for joining me. You can check out Unfabled at unfabled.co. Look out for the next episode of season four dropping next week. Before I go, a quick word from my sponsor, Yotpo, the leading e-commerce marketing platform to increase customer engagement, promote community advocacy, and improve retention. If you want to learn more, go visit them at yotpo.com slash your basket is empty. And as always, if you like the episode, I'd really appreciate it if you could leave a review, subscribe, download, and tell all your mates to do exactly the same. I'll see you next time. Taking notes.